0: We pray, Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts be pleasing in your sight, you who are our rock and our redeemer, amen. Brothers and sisters in Christ, what exactly is the nature of your relationship with God's word? I'm not asking you how often you read the Bible, but I'm asking you more, what do you think about the Bible? Is it a bunch of stories that you learned as a kid? Is it a set of teachings that you have subscribed to as an adult? Is it something more than that? Is it something bigger than that? If this sounds like a really familiar sermon introduction, it's because this is how we started this series six weeks ago. We kind of asked this question, what do we think about God's word? What do we really think about God's word? Not just what it did for us back in the day, but what it's doing for us right now. And so for the last six weeks, we've been reading Psalm 119, which we have described as probably the most passionate tribute to the value of God's Word that has ever been written. The psalm writer makes all these huge statements about how great God's Word is. He says, God's Word is more valuable than gold or silver in my pocket. Uh, God's Word is more delicious than honey in my mouth. God's Word makes me wiser than all of my teachers. God's Word is the light for all of my paths. In fact, there is a verse in this psalm where the writer says, I wake up in the middle of the night, like I set my alarm to wake up just so I can thank God for how great his word is, and then I go back to sleep. This is somebody who just loves God's word, and so this psalm has encouraged us to think of God's word as this treasury of wisdom, this fountain of grace. It's it's our weapon against temptation. God's word is the one thing that equips us for every life situation that we could ever possibly find ourselves in. So, last week, we started to talk about the situation of troubles and hardships and kind of how God's word is there for us during the hardest, worst times of life. And we said sometimes, when life is really terrible, the only thing we can do is just try to endure and survive. Like, that's it. And God's word is there to help us do that, in its simplicity and in its beauty and in its grace. But then, in the not-quite-so-hard times of life, God's Word helps us to move forward from tragedies that have happened in our life. And we talked about this progression of getting up from the dust and being able to stand, and by God's grace being able to walk, and eventually, by God's grace, being able to run. And this was the last verse from last week's sermon. We said, I run in the path of your commands, for you have set my heart free. So basically this is what we were saying last week. God's word gets us through our troubles. It gets us through. Today we take it deeper and we're going to explore how God's word not just gets us through our troubles, but God's word actually turns our sufferings into blessings. Turns sufferings into blessings. And that's kind of a strange statement because I don't think that's how our our world views suffering. People don't usually view suffering as a blessing. I mean, I think typically we would say suffering is something that's bad. I think you could make the argument, actually, that in our society, in our culture, um, we are very, very averse to suffering. Uh, This is a culture where we will do anything to avoid suffering. We desperately want to have pleasure and joy and happiness and a life that is going to be full of good vibes only. But suffering doesn't really care what we want. It just barges into our life again and again, and it butts in where we don't want it to be, but now it's there. Suffering intrudes onto our life, and it forces us to deal with it. It forces us to think about it and acknowledge in some way the bad things that happen to us in our life. So what do we do about suffering? What does our society do about suffering? Well, I think we try really hard to put a positive spin on it, right? And you can see that in pop music. Kelly Clarkson would tell you, what doesn't kill you makes you stronger, right? That's right. I had to listen to this once I started writing the sermon. Uh, And if you don't want to listen to Kelly Clarkson, you could listen to the motivational poster at your gym, which might say something like this, pain is just weakness leaving the body, right? Or you might even read this on a sympathy card, trying to to put a bright side to suffering. Something like this, no matter how dark the forecast, every cloud has a silver lining. I'm not trying to laugh at these statements. These are inspiring. This is motivating. If I'm doing push-ups in the gym and I read the the chesty puller quote, I'll probably do a couple more push-ups. So maybe these pithy little statements can help us when we're feeling down when we're feeling lonely, if we're rehabbing you know, a sports injury, if we're going through a breakup. Some of these hard times of life were inspired by these quotes. But what about when something really absolutely terrible happens? What about when our spouse dies? What about when we get diagnosed with terminal cancer? What about when we have to watch a person that we love go through something terribly painful, and there is absolutely nothing we can do about it. And when life gets really, really terrible, these pithy little quotes and pictures don't really cut it, and we start to realize the truth of the situation. Our world does not really have a good mechanism for processing suffering. We have plenty of bad mechanisms for processing suffering, right? Uh, Abusing drugs and alcohol, lashing out at other people, isolating ourselves from everybody. But none of this really helps with the problem. None of this really removes the fact that suffering has come barging into our life and it's messed up everything that we were wanting and hoping for. It's taken away our health, it's taken away our happiness, it's ruined our life. What are we supposed to do with suffering? And how can there possibly be a silver lining, right, to some of the truly terrible things that happen in this world? Well, our world may not have a good mechanism for processing suffering, but God has a good mechanism for processing suffering. And God's mechanism is his word. And this whole series has caused us to really think differently about God's word. But as you dig into God's word and explore it fully, you start to realize the treasure that you're holding Because God's word gives you a framework for processing suffering that you cannot get anywhere else in the world. So, what is it? What's the the framework? What is so great about God's word that it helps you in suffering the way that nothing else in our entire world can do? Well, the first thing God's word does for us is this. It puts our earthly suffering into eternal perspective. So according to the Bible, suffering is temporary. This world was created without suffering. It was perfect. Everything was great. Then Adam and Eve fell into sin, and the results of that fall into sin were terrible. It caused this entire world to become a seething mess of suffering that affects everybody who's in it. If you are in this world, suffering is going to get on you. If you haven't had suffering in your life, you will. And if you've had it in the past, you'll have it again. It's a world full of suffering and it's everywhere and this is the state of our fallen, broken world. But Christ came to redeem the world and to redeem us and to lift us up and take us one day to a place where there's never going to be any suffering again and where things are once again the way that they once were and once again the way that they should be. And you just listen to how the Bible describes things like heaven In the book of Revelation, this is a description of the children of God who have made it home safely to heaven. Never again will they hunger. Never again will they thirst. The sun will not beat down on them nor any scorching heat. God himself will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain for that old order of things has passed away. No more suffering. That's our destiny. That's our future. And when we realize this, it puts all of our earthly sufferings into perspective. The Apostle Paul said it this way, I consider that our present sufferings are not even worth comparing with the glory that's going to be revealed in us. In another place, he said, our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. According to the Bible, suffering is temporary. Now, time out, our world can say that too. Right? Our world can say suffering is temporary because life has ups and downs, and if you're in a down, like don't worry, there probably will be an up again, and there probably will. Our world can say and agree suffering is temporary. Because no matter how bad it gets, at least at the end of it, one day it's going to stop when you die. But that's about as good as the world can do. As Christians, through God's word, we can say suffering is temporary because we know there's an eternity of perfect happiness waiting us, waiting for us in heaven, a place where we're never going to have to suffer again. So God's word puts our earthly suffering into an eternal perspective. But that's not all God's word does. God's word also uses suffering to connect us with himself. God's word teaches us that this is is how God operates. He uses suffering to connect with us. So how does God do that? Well, first and foremost, God did that by sending Jesus, his son, into our world of suffering to experience it here on the ground level and to rescue us here on the ground level. So we talk about Jesus a lot, right? Because we're a Christian church. We talk a lot about how Jesus suffered and died on the cross, but I don't know how much we talk or think about how much Jesus suffered during his regular actual life. As Jesus walked through this world, he suffered physically with colds and flus and headaches and stomach bugs. And Jesus suffered emotionally with grief when his friend Lazarus died. You remember the verse, Jesus wept? And Jesus suffered with loneliness when his disciples rejected him and one of them betrayed him and handed him over to be killed. Maybe you remember Jesus looking out over the city of Jerusalem and crying tears of sadness that his own people had rejected him and were going to be handing him over to die. Jesus suffered spiritually because he's constantly being tempted by the devil. Jesus suffered anxiety, extreme anxiety, in the Garden of Gethsemane. You remember how he's praying the night before he dies and his sweat is like drops of blood falling to the ground. And that's a medical condition that other people have experienced. It's called hematodrosis and it is something that's been observed in people who are in the depths of anguish and mental and emotional suffering. So the prophet Isaiah was not exaggerating when he described Jesus ahead of time and said that he was going to be a man of sorrows and familiar with suffering. Jesus suffered his whole life long. But as we know, Jesus' suffering reached its climax on the cross of Calvary, where he suffered not just the pain of crucifixion, but where he also suffered literally the pain of hell. He suffered God's punishment for human sin for all of human sin. And all of this suffering, his whole life long, and then also on the cross, all of his suffering, Jesus did for you and for me. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him, and by his wounds we are healed. So you see what I mean? Suffering is what God used as the connection point. Suffering, Jesus' suffering, is what God used to reach down from heaven and connect himself to us. But that's not all God does. Today, God now does the opposite. Now he uses the suffering in our lives to also connect us up to him. And God does that consistently. The reason is because suffering is something that's very hard to ignore. There is a quote from C.S. Lewis that maybe you've heard. Maybe you'll recognize it as soon as I start reading it. But it goes like this. Human beings can rest quite contentedly in our sins and in our foolishness. And we can even ignore our pleasures. But pain is different. Pain insists on being attended to. God whispers to us in our pleasures. He speaks in our consciences, but he shouts in our pain. It is his megaphone to rouse a deaf world. Pain cannot help but get our attention. Right, even though it's filling our eyes with tears. And it causes us to lift up those tear-filled eyes and look somewhere, anywhere, for someone, anyone to help us. And what God does is, in the Bible, He directs our tear-filled eyes to Jesus, to our brother in suffering, to the one who can relate to all the suffering we go through because He's been through it Himself. Because he himself suffered when he was tempted, he is able to help those who are suffering and being tempted. God's word takes our tear-filled suffering eyes and fixes them straight on Jesus. So now we're looking at Jesus instead of looking at ourself. And that's a good thing. Spiritually, that's actually the best thing. To be looking at Jesus and trusting in Jesus and leaning on Jesus instead of ourself. In our second reading, we heard the Apostle Paul talk all about that from his own personal experience. He was suffering from this unspecified physical ailment, the thorn in his flesh. He doesn't tell us what it was, uh, but it caused him to lean more heavily on God than he had ever done before. And here's how Paul describes it in his own words. In order to keep me from becoming conceited, in hardships, in persecutions, in difficulties. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Paul's suffering had taught him a counterintuitive lesson. The more we realize our weakness and helplessness and need, the stronger we actually are as Christians. Because now we are leaning on God's real strength instead of our own shallow pretend strength. Think of it like this. There is an Atlanta-based store chain that I'm guessing you possibly might have heard of before. It's called Home Depot. Uh, And Home Depot's gone through a bunch of different catchphrases over the years, but this was one of their most famous slogans. Home Depot used to say, you can do it, we can help. Is that a pretty good slogan for a hardware store? I mean, I think that's fantastically empowering because what does it do as you're reading this and as you're, as you're thinking about Home Depot this is positioning you as the one who is in charge you the home handyman handywoman you're the foreman, this is your project, you've got this and then Home Depot is just there to supplement with whatever tools or whatever help you need but, but for the most part you've got it and too often we approach our spiritual life the same way you can do it God can help and at first, that line of thinking also feels very empowering, right? Because it positions you, the Christian, as the foreman of your life. You're the one in charge. You've got this. You can do this. And then God's word is just going to supplement. It's going to give you some tips and tricks and tools and like a little extra boost of motivation when you need one. But, but you've got it. And when life is going pretty good, it seems to be working. But then when life gets just terrible, when suffering strikes... When your life becomes so bad that it is abundantly clear to you that you just cannot handle it anymore, it's too much. In those hardest times, God is no longer a supplement. God is the only thing you've got. I mean, God is your everything, and you lean on him because you've got nothing else to lean on. You trust in God with all of your heart because you've got nothing else to trust in. And when we're trusting in God with all of our heart, what is it that we are doing well, we're trusting in the most powerful force in the entire universe. The only one with the power to rescue us from our sins. The only one with the power to raise us from death and bring us to a perfect life in heaven someday. So when you think about it, what a blessing it is for our feeble, foolish faith to get peeled off of ourself and fastened onto the almighty God where it belongs. This is a good thing. What's happening with my faith is a good thing, even though it's happening through suffering. And then, when the clouds finally part and the sun comes out, right? then when you go through the dark valley and you come out the other side, you've made it through the suffering, and life is now better. Life becomes fun again, even if you didn't think it ever would. What has now happened in your relationship with God? There's a whole new depth to that relationship, that was not there before. You and God have gone through stuff together that nobody else in the whole world knows. You and God have had some dark, hard conversations with each other and moments that nobody else in the whole world knows besides the two of you. You have been through the hardest things you can possibly imagine, and when you came out of it, God was still holding on to your hand. Now life is good again. But you've got this bond of familiar trust with God. You've been through things together and that trust is deepened and you're going to need it for the next time suffering comes and the next time temptation comes. And ultimately you're going to need it when the day of your death comes. When for the last time, God uses suffering to connect you to himself in the biggest way. God uses the suffering of your death to bring you out of this broken mess of a world and to his side in a perfect, suffering-free heaven. Brothers and sisters, we live in a broken world. It's a pit of suffering, and if you live in it, you're going to get suffering on you. If you haven't suffered yet in your life, you will. If you've suffered in the past and come through it, you're going to suffer in the future again. But when we go through our sufferings with God, When we go through them led by his word, God uses our sufferings to build in us a stronger faith than we could have ever had otherwise, a faith that keeps us connected to him until we make it to heaven. And in the process of all of this, look at what God has done. He's taken suffering, a thing that anybody in our world would have to describe as bad, and he has turned it into something that spiritually, eternally, can only be described as good. Who can do something like that? Only God can do something like that. And so as bizarre as it sounds, on the outside, you know, as Christians, we can actually thank God for our sufferings and we can mean it because of everything God accomplishes through those sufferings. And by God's grace, we can say things and mean them like the Apostle Paul said, where he said, "'I delight in weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and difficulties.'" For when I am weak, then I am strong. And by God's grace, we can say, like our psalm writer said today, it was good for me to be afflicted so that I might learn your decrees. It wasn't fun. I don't want to do it that way ever again. I'm glad I'm past it. But it was good for me to be afflicted. God made it good for me. May God grant all of us the wisdom to process all of our sufferings through the lens of his word so that even our suffering can become the surprising, unexpected, spiritual blessing that God wants to make it to be. God grant that to us for Jesus' sake. Amen. And now the peace of God which passes all understanding will guard and keep your hearts and minds through faith in Christ Jesus, your Savior. Amen.